that has always attracted to me, this innocence and this vulnerability in these images that I take. But it's also the power that innocence and vulnerability has on the viewer. Because, you know, most people, even with the hardest of hearts, if they see an image of a very adorable baby animal, that vulnerability and the innocence will open their heart a bit. The power of images. Every day of the week, 365 days a year, millions and millions of photographs are taken. In fact, in 2021, over 1.4 trillion were snapped. What do they all mean? With so many, has their value been diminished? I've often asked myself that question. But the photography of my guest today is a reminder that every photograph has the potential to say something powerful, poignant, and meaningful. On this episode of Talking Apes, we're going to be exploring the way we think, interpret, and talk about conservation and wildlife through photography. We'll also touch on the challenges of being an incredibly talented, dedicated female photographer in a field traditionally dominated by men. This time on Talking Apes, we're joined by nature and wildlife photographer Susie Esterhaas. Susie's images have graced the cover of over 100 magazines, including publications like Smithsonian Magazine, BBC Wildlife, Time, and Ranger Rick. Her photographs of great apes have also appeared prominently not only in magazines, but as well in over two dozen books. Susie joins us for a thoughtful, personal look at conservation, its meaning and its importance through the images in our life, and also a look at how that's brought to life in her new book, New on Earth, Baby Animals in the Wild. Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, and this is Talking Apes. Starting our second year of exploring the world of apes and primates, we'll be joined by experts and conservationists, passionate primate people, and photographers and filmmakers like Susie. Talking Apes is the podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you to nonprofit Globio at globio.org. Susie, hi, and welcome to Talking Apes. I am so excited to have you on for so many reasons, which we'll touch on. But the biggest one is, I tell you, I am such an admirer of your photography. We, um, as I said in the intro, um, you are amazing photography. It's really, I'm sometimes a little overwhelmed and intimidated by how good you are as somebody who's done ditto? this. Am I allowed to say ditto to that? <laughs> Um, but I, I want to, I actually want to jump into a part of you that is not photography. And then we'll come back to the photography because you're an orangutan ambassador for, uh, Sumatran orangutan survival and SOS as it's called. It's Sumatran orangutan society. Society. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, thank you. And what, what does that mean to be an ambassador? Uh, it basically just means that I have chosen the species and also the organization as a cause that I will champion for the long term, potentially for the rest of my life. So I've been an ambassador for 11 years. And what that means is that I will constantly throughout my year work to raise awareness for what the species is going through. And then also work to raise money for them. So a few years ago, I had a big fundraiser that I organized 
um, here actually in Petaluma. And we raised um, a lot of money in, in, uh, in one sitting to um, buy some rainforest to restore um, a defunct palm oil plantation. So it, it's, it means a variety of different things. I have different tasks that I do for them. I just did an event for them uh, this week, um, trying to raise money for their year-end campaign. Um, and just also just to tell the world how beautiful these apes are, but also to let the world know, you know, I think we see a lot of stories about orangutans that are really hopeless. And we see them as one of those species that really is going to become extinct and there's nothing we can do. But I actually feel incredibly hopeful about their future, largely because of SOS and organizations like them. Um, and so I, I was sharing a lot of, of why I also feel optimistic as well, which I think is really important these days in conservation. Well, I noticed, yeah, in the title of it, uh, when I, I, I think I saw it posted on Facebook or something when I first noticed and, and the word optimism was in there. And I wanted to ask you about that because I think there is an opportunity to get really depressed when yeah. you see the situation there and especially uh, like someone like you who's been on the ground and seen it firsthand yeah. and you see these vast areas of rainforest that have been lost um, yeah. especially to palm oil so where is your optimism where do you find it i think first of all i think it comes naturally to me i'm an incredibly hopeful person it doesn't mean that i don't struggle with dark times in my life i certainly do and there are times when i feel despair in my personal life, but also my professional life when I am working in these situations. But for the most part, it comes, uh, you know, easily to me. I'm, I'm very hopeful as a person. I mean, I, I, we haven't talked about this yet, but I specialize in baby animals. So, I mean, that is an incredibly hopeful subject, right? We're always looking at new life. Um, and so it, it does come naturally to me. But I think, you know, first of all, you're absolutely right. In terms of orangutans, there is a, a real tendency for us to go to the dark side. And that is because of some of the things that this, these species are facing and the, some of the things that I've been documenting. You know, I've been on the ground with um, rescues that are, that are absolutely devastating. You know, these animals that the one that I in particular was photographing for SOS was a female that was in a very small patch of forest surrounded by clear cut on all sides. And it wasn't enough forest to keep her alive. She was the only orangutan in there. So she was by herself stranded. And essentially the rescue was to evacuate her from that area and bring her to a safer place. And it was devastating because you walked into that forest and she was absolutely traumatized. She had had so much conflict with people already that when she saw us coming, she was trying desperately to hide and then, you know, this team has an incredibly difficult job of having to re-traumatize her and chase her up into a tree that she can't get out of so that we can safely dart her and then catch her with a net below. But in order to get her to a place where they can dart her like that, they basically have to scare the daylights out of her. So it's a very emotional process. Um, and so it's very easy to walk away from a situation like that and feel completely devastated and incredibly frustrated and angry at all the, you know, you walk out and the visual of clear cutting all around you is powerful. But at the same time, I've been able to see some stuff that's truly blown my mind, like the reforestation campaigns that SOS has. They took me to this site where it was a, a palm oil plantation that had been basically illegally gazetted from the national park, which is something that happened a lot in, in Borneo and Sumatra, right? And they were actually chopping down these palm, palm trees and, and planting rainforest. They were restoring the forest. And when I first heard about this project, I was 
I kind of felt like this is a bit of a pipe dream. How is this, you know, I've seen palm oil plantations before. How could you possibly restore one? And you think of like virgin rainforest, right? And how long these trees have been there and, you know, 100, 200 years, right? And how, and in some situations longer, how can we possibly restore these forests in any timely fashion? But being able to see what they're doing on the ground and the real mind blower to me was that in five years, orangutans can come into those patches of land that have been restored and feed on those patches of land, not just orangutans, but all these different species of animals, right? And they're they're also building like bird perches and, you know, you get elephants that pass through and that's always not the best in a restoration area, right? Because they kind of crash around and destroy things, but they're, they're, they have a right to be there too, right? So these animals come back and they're able to, to thrive and sustain themselves after as little as, as five years. That's actually not that long, right? So when we look at these small areas where there's not a lot of habitat left and we've actually you know, most of it has either been saved already or developed already, right? And often the mass, the vast majority has already been developed. Well, now we can actually look at, you know, can we take some of these developed parcels and can we restore them? And that's what SOS is really focusing on. And that's what makes me so hopeful. And then also some of the work with the community makes me incredibly hopeful of, you know, getting these people really involved in restoring the forest, right? So they don't just go in and take these parcels of land they employ the people that used to work on the palm oil plantations. And now these, these staff members are actually working to restore this forest instead of working on a plantation. But in addition to that, they will work with local communities trying to get them to plant more sustainable crops, right? Because obviously these people, they can't all work on restoring the palm oil plantation and there needs to be a longer term future for them, a longer term vision. And so there'll be more sustainable crops rather than the palm coming in where orangutans can actually coexist with people. If you think about it, it's kind of like the bird-friendly coffee that I think a lot of us in the United States are drinking now. I certainly am myself where, you know, we can actually grow coffee without having to completely level the rainforest, right? And it's that kind of same concept with a lot of these crops in Sumatra. And so when you look at that, it does feel incredibly hopeful because these rescues they do, they're, they're the last resort, right? It's always... You never want to, it's not something you want to be doing. It's a Band-Aid and it's not a solution. But the other programs are an absolutely incredible solution that I see a future in. So so it's easy for me to look at their work and feel hopeful and optimistic. You know, you should really be an ambassador for them. Yeah, I probably should. Yeah, you, you really, you, you speak well for on their behalf, don't you? That was amazing. Seriously, oh, yeah, that, that, that was, I'm glad... I'm glad we recorded it uh, because that was that was off script but brilliant. Um, no, and I mean that is that that was wonderful because I think we should be optimistic. There are solutions. So why why baby animals? How did that start? <laughs> well, um, so that started. Was-, was it babies? Was it babies gave you optimists? optimism or you were so optimistic you said i'm going with babies i don't Which know because i was six years old so i'm not sure I'd really thought it through. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe i just thought they were really cute <laughs> um but yeah when i was six i i uh announced that i was going to be a wildlife photographer so i was like one of those yeah i was one of those crazy kids that was like laser focused my mom always said you know Susie, this job chose you, you did not choose it. Like, I, I don't know what it's like to live and not want to do this job. Right. And so 
for me, um, it's always been my central focus. And for some reason, I've always gravitated towards baby animals um, versus adults. And of course, you know, when I tell baby animal stories, there's loads of adults and behavior and predation and all these things that aren't very babyish, right? But that central focus of a baby growing up is a story that I love to shoot and tell for various different species over and over again. And, you know, I think in, cause people ask me all the time, right? Like, why do you do babies? Cause it's, it is kind of weird. Like I think I'm the only baby animal specialist in the world. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm undoubtedly a weird person, but I think what it comes down to, I've thought about this a lot. And I think what I'm attracted to is the, the innocence and the vulnerability. And there's, there's such beauty in that, right? To me, it's just like gobsmacking beauty in that. And there's not a lot of room for that in our culture, right? We're not, we're not taught. I do a lot of spiritual work and we're not really taught that we can be vulnerable. Um, and it's all about, at least I, the way I was raised was be strong, be strong. Don't show your weaknesses ever. Right. And so I think particularly now with, with social media, um, and the way that we raise our children, it is, um, very much about always looking good, always looking perfect, strong, beautiful, whatever it is, and not showing our, our vulnerability and certainly not showing our innocence, right? Because that, that leaves us vulnerable to pain and particularly the way we raise our boys, but also the way we raise our girls. Um, and so I think that there, that is always attracted to me, um, this innocence and this vulnerability in these images that I take. But it's also the power that innocence and vulnerability has on the viewer, because, you know, most people, even with the hardest of hearts, if they see an image of a beautiful image of a very adorable baby animal, that vulnerability and the innocence will open their heart a bit um, and make them potentially, hopefully want to do something to help these animals, the earth, whatever it is, right? So that I do believe that this kind of imagery has the power to create change by just cracking us open. Um, and I think we need to crack ourselves open more and more if we're going to be able to, to save the planet, right? Because it's not just about saving the planet, it's about inner work and how important that is. And also, you know, loving each other, right? I, I love that phrase, cracking us open to create change. Um, it has a great imagery to it, actually. Um, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think that's one of the, you know, one of the things that both you and I have tried to do with our work mm -hmm. over the years is, is to try to create change by getting people to see the world in a different way. And, and that starts, uh, as you said, by cracking people open a little yeah. bit and letting that vulnerability. You, you just said something called, you know, you, we're brought up strong, strong, don't show your vulnerability. Mm. It's an interesting phrase coming from you because you're in a business that doesn't have a lot of females in it. Right. Um, right. It's, it's historically, I mean, it was, I know as uh, when I was, especially in, you know, 20 years ago or so, as I was working around the, the planet, one of the things that it started really resonating with me was the fact that we needed to get more women involved in it because I was um, filming in Papua New Guinea and there were things that were off limits to me because it was things that women did mm -hmm. um, that I, as a male, 
just could not access. Mm -hmm. Um, And at that point, I thought we need to tell their story to be able to, you know, capture this for future generations, especially for them, for their own generations, because things were going to change. I was working with some indigenous people there that we need more women in this um, so we can tell that side of the story and from that perspective. And so the question I guess I want to ask is, it is a business that photography and filmmaking is a business that has historically not been very open to women. Mm-hmm. How how have you how have you been able to succeed at it? And what have you faced in there to, to get to overcome to to be so successful? Because you are enormously successful um, at this. Um, I think you know I I am very strong. And I think that you have to be in order to, first of all, I think to succeed as any artist, you have to have a certain amount of strength because you face rejection, whether you're a man or a woman, right? So there's that. But as a woman, um, I think that uh, I had to be incredibly strong and resilient. I think I had training as a kid. I was bullied a lot as a kid. And um, that really did teach me not just to be physically strong. I mean, my dad literally taught me how to fight but also to um, be emotionally and mentally strong and to do my own thing regardless of what my peers said. And um, that, that came in real handy when I started to try to make a living in this career. And I did face um, uh, sexism and sexual harassment. I mean, you name it. I, I absolutely faced it. Um, my, you know, I, I literally had uh, conferences that I can remember going to. I had a moment where one of, and I won't say any names, but like one of the top, top guys when, you know, this is, it was an old boys club back then. It still kind of is now, as you mentioned, but um, uh, back then it was even worse. And I remember this photographer that I admired for a lot of my life um, and one of the real top names in the business, probably one of the top three. And, um, I remember being in line and I was already pretty established by now. Um, and I remember being in line for a latte and he was in front of me with his friends. And I remember him turning around and saying, Susie, little girl's line is over there and pointing somewhere else. And this was at a NAMPA conference at a North American nature photography association conference. Yeah. And so just like, you know, things like that. And then, you know, and then even worse things with like an, an incredible amount of, of, of sexual harassment, um, on a, on a crew of where I was one of 12, uh, expedition leaders and I was the only woman, um, and having to endure that for the month long expedition. Um, and you know, it made me, uh, it was obviously traumatizing and very emotional, but also it made me very resilient and very strong. And luckily for me, I think the way that I dealt with it was um, very much the same way I dealt with bullying as a kid, where it's like, I'm just going to stay laser focused and do what I want to do. And I'm not going to let anybody else stop me. So it was never a question of like, I'm going to give up because all these guys are assholes. It's like, no, I want to photograph animals. I, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do. This is my dream and nothing, no matter how hard it is, nothing is going to stop me from doing that. And I, and I, and that completely got me through. And then I think, you know, now, um, you know, one of my ways of dealing with it, uh, I, you know, when I turned 40, I 
felt this need to sort of give back. Then that's when I started my nonprofit, Girls You Click, to try to get more girls into this field, right? And now that's the way I deal with it, which is actually very productive and very rewarding because I'm obviously in a privileged position where I don't really have to fight anymore with my peers because I am established. But what I what we've done is created the safe space of sisterhood and community for young women in this career. And we have, you know, young women that are coming into our meet and greets that we do. And some of our young ambassadors are literally telling the same exact stories of like what I went through. It's very frustrating because it's like, this is happening 20 years later and it's still happening. But to be able to give these women a place, a safe space where they can share this and, and then we can give them advice on this is what you say to a man when a man says this to you, because sometimes it's you become paralyzed and it's hard to know what to do and what to say um, and just to give each other support and lift each other up. And that's been incredibly rewarding as well. So my focus is largely turned from like, you know, screw you. I'm, I'm not going to let you change my course here. And my life is on this trajectory, whether you like it or not, to I'm actually giving back. And that feels uh, very rewarding, much more rewarding than you know, fighting my own fight, so to speak. No, oh, thank you for that uh, very much. Um, and we will put um, in, and we'll put in some of the stuff we do the the links to you know, um, some of the some of the organizations cool. that you support, but especially there, so that um, any young women listening to this, women in general listening to this, I guess men listening to this who should know better and want to learn something um, <laughs> can, can, uh, can find out more. Um, Cause it probably should start on that side of the well, fence. I, do, you know, I want to say Jerry, like this isn't meant to be anti-male. There have always been a few like you, you've never looked at women differently. You've always supported women in this field. You know, I have other colleagues, you know, some of them, even and one of the things that's nice is that I do notice the younger male colleagues are more open um, to women in this field and diversity because let's face it, it's white male dominated still, right? So and diversity, um, but there were always a few even of the you know generation when I was getting into it that were very supportive of women being in this field, but you know there weren't many. Um, so so yeah. Hi folks, this is Meg Stark, producer of Talking Apes and all-around primate enthusiast. We love connecting you to the people who are at the forefront of ape conservation and research around the world, but we need your help. Your support gives apes a voice, and you can help us spread their voices even further by supporting Talking Apes with a monthly donation at globio.org slash donate. That's G-L-O-B-I-O dot org backslash donate. Thank you so much for listening. Now back to the show. When you approach storytelling, what is it you're after? What are you trying to do as a, as a photographer and a storyteller? Cause I think one of the beauties of your photography uh, that I appreciate is it's not just a bunch of pretty pictures. Yeah. You can, you can certainly pull any of those pictures out and you, you do that. If someone goes to your website and they, they look, you have prints for sale. So there are, there are certainly single images, but one of the things that I think has given me, given you longevity in this business is the fact that you tell stories. How do you approach storytelling? And especially in terms of apes, what are you trying to say? I think one of the things that I'm always trying to do is give people a window into an animal's life. And so like, 
I, my favorite work is when I can follow a family from, um, from infancy to adulthood, right? That's my absolute favorite where I could work with one mom and her babies and basically show all the sort of trials and tribulations, the dramas that these youngsters go through in learning how to be that animal, right? And I think it it's an incredibly intimate view if you spend a long period of time with your subjects, which I do, you know, and it can be anywhere from a few weeks to a few months to like a couple years with the animal that I'm working on. And so, but more than that, and this is where it becomes, I think, and it's easy to do with great apes because they're so similar to us. Um, and, and, but you could even do it with big cats too and, and bears, but particularly great apes because they're so intelligent is to show these individuals, show these individuals as, as beings that have individual personalities, that have moods, that have good days, they have bad days. Um, we know they have thoughts, right? We don't know what exactly they are, but we know they have thoughts. So to almost relate them to human beings and to show them in this way. Um, and this is so, when you're with great apes, this is this one of the beauties of being with great apes is that it's actually very easy to see. If you spend time with certain individuals and you observe them, um, I always joke about this chimpanzee named Lonjo that um, he's one of my, he's like my animal crush. Um, when, I was, when I was younger and I heard people talking about animal crushes, I was like, whoa, those women have been in the bush too long. <laughs> I have animal crushes. And, um, <laughs> but Lonjo. Yes, they have been in the bush too long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, Lonjo basically, he, um, he's this chimpanzee that was in the running to be alpha. Um, and, and it was very funny because the researchers that I was working with at Kibali, they kind of had bets of who was going to become the new alpha. And, um, and I remember thinking it's not going to be Lonjo. And, and cause Lonjo was like so peaceful. He didn't like fighting, you know, he, he was very, very peaceful. So Zen, so relaxed, you know? Um, and, it's like he doesn't really have the aggression that it takes to be the alpha. And, um, and then he never went on to be alpha. Um, and then, but I remember being with Lonjo and he did this thing to me one day, you know, he's a very, very, this is going to sound freaking weird. Like they feel are going <laughs> to, this is probably why I'm still single, but anyway, <laughs> Okay, we'll go. That that will be our next question. But go ahead, finish, finish this. So, so anyway, Lancho, he would you know he's very good looking young male chimpanzee, but he grew up around people and he was very engaging, and he was particularly engaging with female humans that were around him. Right, and obviously when you're with any animal, you can't touch, and it's so important, especially with great apes, as you know, right? Because of the germ transference and you, you keep a certain amount of distance, right? And it's very important. But Lanjo would, he would look at you and he would do this thing where he would do, he would outstretch, he would stretch out his arm and he would open his palm and he would look at you like gazingly, right? And this is like grooming solicitation behavior. This is what they do to try to get females to groom them. And I remember sitting there thinking, freaking Lanjo's flirting with me. You know, and like, and, and then I told the, the research assistant who was this 
really funny girl that I'm still friends with to this day, Jess. I was like, Jess, I was like, I got a crush on Lonjo. Lonjo's so hot. And she's like, oh my God, no, I, he's mine. You can't touch him. And we all had this joke that like Lonjo was like the heartthrob of like the Kabali chimps. Right. But the, the, you know, all joking aside, the point is, is that these animals are just like humans. They all have different personalities. They have different stories. They have different backgrounds. They have different emotions, moods, you know, good days, bad days, all of it. Right. So if we can get people to start thinking about these animals as individuals rather than species, right? Because I think that's a one of the, the hard things, one of the maybe the not so great things science has brought in. And it's good to know these species-wide behaviors and these general things about the species, right? But we, I think the general public has a tendency to think of these animals as species and not individual beings. And with my stories, I really like people to see them as individual beings. Well, I think that's the strength of, of doing what you do and following as you said, you know, taking a mother and following these babies is you, be, you have an opportunity to tell those individual stories. Yeah. You, you can see those personalities. I mean, you have, you have a new book out called new on earth. And I, mm-hmm. I think that, that, I mean, the cover photo, it's not an ape, but it's my, probably my next favorite animal on the planet, which is cheetahs. And I know you mm-hmm. have a long history with cheetahs as well, but here it's a, it's a mother with, I'm looking at it now. It's a mother with three little cubs. Is there is there a favorite baby story that you have from little I mean little infant toddlers is there one that just jumps out at you that says clearly talks about this in, this individuality of the cheetahs were were pretty special um because I there were they were special and they were oh I don't want to bring doom and gloom into this but um working with cheetahs was really difficult because they have a really high mortality rate. Um, it's 95% under the age of three months. And when I heard this, I was just like, nope, there, you know, that's too high. That can't, that can't be possible. Right. And then one of my first litters that I worked with, uh, I actually worked with a female when she was pregnant and I photographed the cubs for the first time when they were five days old. And over 19 days, I saw every single one die all five. Um, and it was so devastating. Um, it was, you know, it's hard to describe, but when you're out there spending a lot of time with these animals, watching them from sunrise to sunset, even though we're not interacting with them, you do get emotionally attached. And I remember being incredibly distraught. Um, but then there were some that did survive. And the ones that did survive, one of the things that was but, and this is my goal to this day with every animal I work with, I want to blend into the background and become a boulder in the landscape. And so with these cheetahs, they would often play on my car. So it's a thing for cheetahs to get on a car and to try to look out over long grass and look for, for prey coming or for danger predators coming their way. Um, and so it's not that uncommon, but these cubs essentially just grew up around me and they were so used to me that they would, you know, do things like play on the tires or, or jump on the hood. And when you're with them for, you know, all day, it's actually really hard to get them to stop doing this. It's almost impossible, right? Um, if you're there as a tourist on safari for a brief amount of time, it's easier, but when you're with them sunrise to sunset, you know, they're going to do it. And um, I remember this male jumping up on the hood one day 
And he looked in, my, my window was open as usual. And he looked in and he was literally like almost face to face with me. And he looked at me and he pawed my shoulder and he was just trying to engage me in play. And it was such a beautiful moment. And I felt incredibly privileged. I did not play back, obviously. You know, there. I really, truly believe in no engagement with, with wild animals, no physical interaction, um, you know, except for rescue situations or something, right? And, um, and so he just pawed me and I had to ignore it. But I felt, you know, so privileged to, um, and also I was very humbled by how much he trusted me. And this is, you know, I want to make it clear, this isn't an area where cheetahs, you know, are, are very protected and that he was not going to go into a, into a village and get into trouble and anything like that. Um, he was in a good situation. Um, and those moments, I think, really, really stand out. And I think with apes in particular, they're so habituated to people that as photographers, we have an advantage going in because there's no habituating them to our presence. There's no getting them used to us. They're just used to, you know, we're, we're working, not all apes, but most of the apes I work with, they've already been around tourists. They've been around researchers. There's a long history of habituation. So it makes them incredible subjects because they'll literally, you know, you have to keep a distance from them essentially to not give them your germs. It's usually on you to back up, right? Because they sometimes will try to interact with you or just don't care about how close they pass you. Um, and so, you know, numerous experiences with chimpanzees and, uh, and mountain gorillas, um, you know, mountain gorilla mom holding her two twins in her arms, like lady Madonna holding them. I'll, I'll never forget that it was in a rainstorm. So there's, there's a lot of moments that I have with species, um, babies around the world, um, that, that have been profoundly touching, which is why I continue to do what I do after 15 years. I, I, I can't, I won't ever get sick of it ever. I actually do want to ask you about that why you're still single and but from this perspective. Great, Cherry. <laughs> uh, no, but the reason I want to ask you about that is because from the perspective of this is a very difficult uh career that you've chosen. We we talked a little bit about why it's difficult to be a woman in this, but we also just in general, it's not I mean, you're on the road if you're if you're successful, that means you're also on the road. And being because you you don't just photograph you know raccoons in your backyard you know endlessly you yeah. are photographing species all across the planet right. um, and especially if you're working on apes you're working in the tropics of Africa right. and Southeast Asia and how do, how does that work into a lifestyle I think you know I definitely think that when I was younger I was doing ten months um, and ten months on the road and that's incredibly difficult. Um, it's difficult on your relationships with, you know, not just romantic relationships, but friendships, family. And one of the things I think is, um, you know, and I, and it, earlier in my career, I lived in a bush camp for three years and that was essentially almost full time. And I think one of the things, one of the reasons why I left that camp is because I, I didn't have enough human connection. Um, and so, you know, just because you're in this field working with animals doesn't mean that you, um, don't gravitate towards people. Right. And so I've always been a very social person. So one of the things that has been a challenge for this career is how isolating it is. Right. And I absolutely love my days alone with animals, but it's also very difficult to be so far from the people that you love. I think for me, when I was younger, I did do, you know, 10 months a year, and then I got incredibly burned out. 
um, and really wasn't doing any amount of self care. And, you know, my career was, was soaring, but, um, the rest of me was sort of a mess. So I hit sort of this work-life balance crisis and, um, and really had to strive for years to cultivate, um, a balanced life and really got myself down to, you know, these days I'm on the road, probably five months a year, four or five months a year. And that's still a lot, you know? Um, but I think also too, the other thing is that it's all consuming, right? It's not always just the amount of time. Cause I have, you know, some of the guys I've dated have been in this exact same field, right. And we have the same interests and we have done things together, but most of my work has been very independent and quite solo and it's all consuming, you know, there's, because it's my passion and it's my life. Um, it's not like leaving the office at 5 PM every day. Right. And the other thing is too, like there, it's just weird. It's a weird job. Like I'm consistently looking at photos of nipples, trying to decide if an animal is pregnant or has little ones, you know? And then if I decide an animal is pregnant or does have little ones, I'm on a plane to Africa in 48 hours and like, bye, see you later. My whole family and my whole world knows that I'm always on call for one subject and that anything is off, even Christmas, whatever it is, if that subject gives birth, right? So it's a, it's a very strange life to live, but it's a, it's a life that, you know, gives me great joy and I'm incredibly passionate about. So it doesn't feel like a sacrifice, if you see what I mean, because I love what I do so much. I, I, no, I, you're, you're talking to the choir, <laughs> yeah. uh, obviously. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why, that's part of the reason I asked that question is because, you know, um, for everything you said, I have been through. The yeah. interesting thing that I think you and I have in common is we do, we are social creatures. Yeah. And we, and it's finding that life balance also. Um, right. And we have found it in similar ways in that, you know, lecturing and talking to people and getting that kind of feedback, doing some guiding um, where you're with other people and getting that feedback and, and the connection. So there's all that. Giving back is also one of those ways you, you know, you get that, you know, you're helping yeah. other people. Like we were talking earlier about SOS. I, I want to come back to to your new book, uh, yeah. new on earth. And the fact that you're giving 30%, is that right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Of the, of the proceeds of the book are, are going to what um, it's wildlife conservation, wildlife conservation network yeah. network. Right. Yeah. And, and so most of uh, most of your life you've been giving back i mean it's now over we were talking a little bit before we started the podcast and it's now over two hundred thousand yeah. dollars um you have you're connected to to in about a dozen different organizations yeah talk to me about that decision um to do that because that's okay. that's a sacrifice i mean it is you know it's a again it's a career that isn't um it isn't generous. You have to go out and earn it. As, as right. I said in a, uh, a lecture to university years and years ago, the difference between this and, and most professions is you graduate from university and you become a dentist. You have that sheet of paper that goes up on the wall. And from that point on, people assume you're a dentist. And no matter where you graduated in your graduating class, you could have been the worst dentist in the world. But right. Right. they legitimate. we're only as good as the thing we just did. Right. And right. So giving, um, you know, sacrificing, if you want to use that word, the amount of time, energy and things to raise that kind of money for other groups is, is unique, I think, um, in this business. And so 
Talk to me a little bit about the motivation behind that and how is that there when, like when you create a new book, like new on earth, which I love the title, by the way, um, it's yeah. just, it, it has it better than just saying, you know, babies, <laughs> it has right. this really lovely uh, connotation. And how, how do you, how do you think about that in terms of conservation? How do you think about the organization that you're going to support and all those things? How do you go about that process? I think, um, you know, like you said, this isn't a very lucrative career, but one of the things is that I think when you, when you're living it and you're seeing what these animals are facing, it sometimes doesn't feel like you really have a choice in a way, because it's like, I don't want things to continue happening the way they are. And so for me, it's like, there's no question that I wouldn't give a portion of my proceeds to, to what's happening, um, to, to the cause that I'm working with. And I almost see it as like, you know, I've talked to young photographers about like the mindset of that. And, um, rather than thinking about it's money that I'm sacrificing, I think about it more as almost like, you know, the way a business would think about an ad budget, right? There are certain businesses where like a certain every year they have to allocate a certain amount of money into advertising. It's like a, a, a non-decision. It's just something they do. It's a cost of doing business. And I kind of think about it as that, like I just, it's a cost of doing business and it's not a question of whether or not I'm going to do it. It's who I'm going to give it to. And so nearly every book that I do is 30% to another organization. And then, you know, I think that, um, yeah. So in terms of how I choose there, I brainstorm ways that, that, you know, it's not just books, it's, um, the prints that I do. It's also, uh, some of my tours I'll have, I'll try to brainstorm ways that an organization can benefit my tour group and that we can benefit them. So for an example, um, in 2023, I'm doing an African safari. One of our targets is to photograph wild dogs the wild dog, the painted dog conservation project is going to go out with us and track the dogs. There's one dog in every pack that has a collar. So they'll go out with their tracking devices and help us locate the dogs because dogs are very hard to find. They move a lot. And so my clients will get a win because they'll be able to see the dogs and photograph the dogs. And then we will give $10,000 to the painted dog conservation project. And that's built into the tour costs. So I'm very creative about ways too that I can make it sort of mutually beneficial for parts of my business to benefit conservation. Um, and, uh, and it really works, you know, so it's that, that $200,000 has been through my prints, my tours and my books. So it's been like direct funds raised. And then also, you know, I do do the fundraisers every once in a while. And then what I do is an aside that I don't even consider part of what I'm raising is I do these fundraisers, right? And then I just show up, right? So that's not direct fundraised, but that's awareness campaigns. And then, you know, we do make money out of that. Um, the other thing, too, that I've done that has been incredibly successful is self-published a couple ventures where uh, the organization that I'm partnering with will actually fund all the money for the printing, so that actually 100% of the proceeds or like, you know, 60% of the proceeds or whatever it is goes to the organization. And I'll, if I take something, I'll take a small part. And that has been also um, very effective as well for fundraising. But yes, it does. I mean, to me, it's like a no brainer. I wouldn't consider doing this and not giving back the two go hand in hand. And I think it's because I've seen 
conservation projects on the ground um, happening, both in, in good ways. And then I've also seen terrible stuff happening in terms of conservation as well. And I want to do something about it. How could you not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I, I I agree with you completely. It, it, you are when you are there on the ground, there is this urge to like, how how can I help hmm. the situation I'm in? And And then also... Just um, as you, a word you used earlier, privilege, it's, uh, you know, one of the things I think we give up as filmmakers and photographers is where, where we may give up making millions of dollars doing something else. We, we have this privileged life that would cost millions to have, you know, and, uh, and all the experiences that we get to have, have that cheetah reach in that window, um, you know. Yeah, to be able to wake up and do something that gives us great joy every day. I mean, if you think about the percentage of people on this planet that have that, it's not very high, right? And and so I always tell young people who are trying to get into this, and I always ask them, like, how important are material things to you? Because if they're very important to you, this is the wrong career. But if experiences are more important to you and connection is more important to you, then this is the absolute right career. So I think it's a matter of your priorities as well. And if it's, if you're prioritizing something, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice to not have other things. Until you have $50,000 of credit card debt. And then it starts feeling like you can pay that off. You know, I paid mine off in 12 years. It worked. There are two things I wanted to ask you about. First Mm -hmm. there we've seen in, um, certainly over the course of your career, the years of your career, you have seen a shift, I think, in the way um, we think about images and their images of wildlife and and the public. Um, and there's a growing, and that continues to grow every year. We, you know, we see the way that the magazines that we work with or something that the way they use images now versus what they, they did, you know, 40, 50 years ago. There's recently CVS, the the drugstore chain, announced that they would no longer, after being pushed a bit, but they they would no longer be selling any greeting cards that had apes on the cover with wearing clothes and costumes and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you uh, just, I, I mean, I can kind of guess your general thoughts on that, but more importantly, have you ever... Have you ever taken, if you ever created images or worked in a place and taken photographs and you, you said, you know, I, you, you may have taken the photograph, but then you said, I don't know if I, I really want that out in the world for the world to see it does it, because it's hard to have context around it. Um, it's hard for that, for that image to stand alone and not be misunderstood by the, by the world, by the public, and, and especially misunderstood in terms of that that species or that individual? You know, I think the situations where I've had, um, I certainly, in some situations with scientists, I'm very careful about how I photograph the science that they're doing because um, sometimes that can be misinterpreted as um, something that's potentially cruel um, when it's, when it's not, um, or snuggling when it's not. Um, I think that for me, the, the, what I think of the most when you ask that question is, um, I have been in situations where I have, uh, been around violence 
Um, so in particular, an anti-poaching project where I went out with an anti-poaching team for three weeks and shadowed them um, on ambushes and, and, and that kind of thing. And there were definitely times when they caught poachers and um, I was trying to photograph the entire thing, right? And so the, um, the capture of the poachers would often turn very violent. Um, and there was brutality that went on. And what I, in the beginning, I photographed it because I wanted to tell the story. And what I realized was my presence as a photographer was accelerating the violence. And that if I took those photos, it became worse. And they became more aggressive. And, um, and so I stopped and I said, I'm not going to photograph this. Um, and it wasn't to not show what the anti-poachers were doing. It was just because I didn't want to be a part of the violence. I didn't want to be a piece of it. I didn't want to be at all a fraction of the reason why someone was getting beaten. Um, and so uh, I had to make a choice there and say, I'm not a conflict photographer. I'm a, I'm a wildlife conservation photographer. Um, but it was a very difficult position for me to be in because I went into that project very much wanting to tell the whole story. And in the end, actually chose not to tell parts of the story so that the focus stayed on conservation. If you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. No, I totally understand. Um, One last question, and that's what's next for you. I mean, you photograph so many species. You photograph probably every place on the planet almost. What, what, what motivates you to get up in the morning? Like, what's the next story? What's the next subject? Well, Jerry, I recently did a list and there's 72 stories. <laughs> so I have to get cracking. <laughs> okay. You know? So I have to start working very hard, right? Because I'm already 45, so I got to chop, chop. Um, but I, uh, there's a... I, w- I want to interrupt you one, one yeah. quick, quick second with that. Because you're 45. Yeah. If you look at story, you say you got 72, you, you yeah. look at stories and you say, you know, let's say on average, it takes a couple of years per story to really yeah. do it right. I'm going to run out of time. Jerry. Yeah, you've got 144 <laughs> years there. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Do you, I mean, do you think about it like that? I do. I definitely do. And I tell you what's really, I mean, it's going to, this is going to sound depressing, but I think about what are these species are going to be around long enough. Right. And there are definitely stories that I will choose to do because I think that animal may not be around if I don't choose to do them right now. That's a heartbreaking one. Um, The but yeah, I mean, generally what I do when I choose my stories is I choose what I'm passionate about. And it's it's um, for me, it's a very artistic process. And it's a very um, I'm like, a I don't I, I don't know how to describe it, but I will. It will come to me what I want to do, and then I will get absolutely obsessive, and I won't be able to stop thinking about it. And um, I'll literally be up at night thinking about the story that I want to do. Um, and then I'll, and then I'll usually, you know, I have to be on call for certain things. So a project can sometimes take even three years before I begin shooting it, depending on the government permissions that I have to get and stuff like that. Um, the one I'm currently doing at the moment, I, I just. Um, I just finished up a, um, a rhino story that I'm editing, and then I am 
So I just started on the first shoot of an elephant story that'll probably be three or four shoots and it'll be over probably a year, maybe two years. Um, so Ellie's are my big one next. Yeah. Well, I, I look forward to seeing that. I mean, you, I mean, you know, my, my wild orphans project, Ellie's are a soft spot for my heart as well. Awesome so, so I, I think you just encapsulated, uh, right there. Why I'm still single. Why? Why? Because you said, <laughs> you're up at night thinking about these things and you've got back-to-back stories and they're not even done. It's like, okay, where do you squeeze in I'm another? slightly driven. Yes. Yeah, slightly yeah. driven. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Susie, this has been really great, great fun. We talked about maybe getting together in uh, Costa Rica and doing a uh, filming, a thing on you and Sloss. So we yeah. have to put that on the books and make sure that we, uh, we get to it somewhere. In the future, okay. I would love to do that. Be fun to be in the in the field together. So, yeah. Thank you so much for taking time to do this. It's it's Susie Esterhaus, and we will put dot com, and that's where people can find you on the web. Find all your books. uh, Find information about you. Sorry, it is the most fun. You go ahead. You can spell it. Want me to? Yes. It's s u z i e s z t e r h a s dot com. And we can, and so somebody can find about your tours, your books, your prints, everything there, right? Yeah, it's yeah. All there. And and I would also suggest that people sign up for your newsletter so they can stay up with where you're going and what you're doing too. So, yes. um, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate you taking time, squeezing us in between all those months and months of traveling and wherever you are on the on the planet. Thank you for having uh, me, Jerry. Yeah. Talking Apes is, it's interesting. It's been a a great joy for me to do this show because of people like you. So thank you very much. Once again, I'd like to thank Susie Esterhaus for joining us and sharing her perspectives on conservation through a different lens. To see some of Susie's strikingly beautiful images along with her new book, follow the link in our show notes. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach passionate primate people, and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the forefront of news about our wild primate cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.globio.org backslash Talking Apes, or of course, wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes, or ideas about future podcasts, you can always email us at media at globio.org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark. As we start our second year of Talking Apes podcast, it wouldn't be happening without her amazing work behind the scenes. And finally, I'd like to thank you. Talking Apes isn't possible without listeners like you. If you haven't already, please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation at globio.org. I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening to Talking Apes.